Welcome to the latest episode of Sound Strategic from the International Institute for Strategic Studies. My name is James Crabtree. I run the IISS office in Singapore, and I'm standing in for our normal host, Maya Noens. The IISS just launched Strategic Survey 2022, which is our flagship review of geopolitics. It looks at a range of issues from the West's withdrawal from Afghanistan, definitively ending the two-decade war on terror, to Russia's invasion of Ukraine six months later, beginning the first major European war since 1945, and everything else in between from China's military modernization to the AUKUS deal between the United States, Australia, and the United Kingdom, and the arms race that is developing in space. To mark the launch of this annual publication and discuss some of the main themes, I'm joined by three of my most distinguished colleagues, Dr. Nigel Gould-Davis, who is the editor of Strategic Survey, and when he's not doing that, a senior fellow for Russia and Eurasia, Emil Hokayam, who's senior fellow for Middle East Security, and Maya Noens, our usual co-host, senior fellow for Chinese security and defense policy. So Nigel, let me turn to you first. You are the editor of Strategic Survey, so you put together this epic publication. Can you give us an overview of this year's book? What's new in it and what are the main themes that you would highlight? Thank you, James. Well, as you said, Strategic Survey is our annual assessment of geopolitics, and we aim to provide an analysis of what we judge to be the most important geopolitical issues of the year. Some of them are well-known, others less so that we think should be better known. We also look to peer ahead around corners to how these might develop. The contents this year, which cover all continents, are, I would say, too rich and diverse to be encompassed in a single master theme. But the overarching sense that we had in compiling this was that the geopolitics of this moment marks a fault line in history. On the one hand, marks the end of the 20-year, now more or less forgotten, war on terror. And that was a consequence of the departure from Afghanistan. And then Russia's invasion soon after launched an invasion, the worst and most severe war in Europe since 1945. That is having global consequences, economic and political. It is transforming the Western security order. It's ushering in a new era of geoeconomics. I think this is especially significant. And in fact, when we had our launch event on the 5th of December, that coincided with the imposition of a whole range of new and very significant coercive geoeconomic measures that the West is imposing on the export of Russian oil. There's a lot of the war across the survey this year. There's plenty of China as well, and I think we'll talk about that later, both the external dimensions of, uh, of China's growing strength, but also questions about its domestic cohesion as well. And finally, there's always, every year in a strategic survey, an essay or two that's a surprise, uh, something that we see is important but not widely noticed. And uh, a good example of that this year is a very fine essay on the tensions between Algeria and Morocco that could well lead to a war over the Western Sahara. And since Algeria provides gas to Europe via Morocco, this has wider implications for the continent, a time when, again, energy geopolitics are at the top of the European agenda. Uh, were our listeners to be able to see me in Singapore presently, they would see that I have a 
copy of Strategic Survey, which I'm holding up on the call that we're currently on. It's a very handsome book. It is some 400 pages long. It's divided into 11 chapters, most of which are regional. So Europe, Russia, and Eurasia, the Middle East, which we'll hear about in a minute from Emil, North America and Asia. But it begins with an overview section called Strategic Policy, two of the chapters of which are on Russia's war in Ukraine, one on emerging military lessons and one on what the war means for geopolitics. Given that's, in a sense, your regular beat, Nigel, would you give our listeners a a taste of the analysis uh, in in those sections uh, before I uh, move on to to ask Emil about the Middle East? A couple of points there that uh, I think are worth emphasizing. First, that the war, so far nine months long and set to continue rather longer, I would say, almost certainly through to the end of next year, has already laid bare some of the underlying weaknesses of Russian power across multiple domains. It's not only that Russia has failed to defeat Ukraine on the battlefield and indeed is now in a weaker position than at almost any time since it launched its invasion. We've seen the failure of Russia's informational power, much vaunted and feared in the West, as capable of sowing mischief and discord within Western societies. But really, almost no one who matters believes the Russian narratives uh, of this war, uh, in the West at least. Russian cyber power, again, lots of concerns about that before the war. That's a dog that hasn't barked. Russian vulnerabilities economically mounting up as sanctions increasingly take effect. And I think 2023 will be a very bad year indeed for the Russian economy. And more broadly, uh, if we look beyond relations with the West, the degree of Russia's isolation from much of the rest of the world, which certainly exceeds anything that the Soviet Union faced, even in the darkest and most adversarial years of the Cold War. So it's Russia's weakness, Russia's isolation, and the extent of its estrangement from the most productive parts of the the global economy. I think whatever um, whatever terms the war eventually ends, whatever the shape and eventual peace settlement, I think that uh, these are new strategic realities which look very bleak for Russia's future. Emil, it was said at the beginning that in a sense we're on a, a geopolitical hinge of history in which we're moving away from the war on terror, a way of thinking about the world which privileged the Middle East to one which looks at great power competition, which tends to focus more on Russia and China. But in a sense, there's still plenty going on in the Middle East. You wrote the overview chapter for uh, Middle East and North Africa and also a piece on Saudi foreign policy. But maybe I could just ask you about the Middle East from a big picture first. It, It might seem to some of our listeners that the Middle East has become less prominent over the last 12 months and, and less violent. Um, is that really what's happening? What do you see happening in the various conflicts and trouble spots and regional rivalries that dot that part of the world? This has been the least busy, least intense year for a Middle East analyst in quite some time. This year has been quite remarkable in terms of lower levels of conflict on the main battlefields, Syria, Yemen, Libya. But it also has been the least intense in terms of regional rivalries. We've seen quite spectacular rapprochement between Turkey and Saudi, Turkey and the UAE, Turkey and Egypt, 
We've seen the reconciliation among the Gulf states pick up some momentum. Saudi and Qatar have much better relationship today than they had a year or two years ago when they were a very, very different place. And importantly, there were a number of bilateral tracks between Gulf countries and Iran. They don't necessarily amount to a full detente, but there are talks that didn't exist a year or two years ago. So it's worth noting that. However, none of the main issues have been resolved, essentially. There's no real political tracks that seek to take advantage of this less toxic environment and solidify them. And so we, we still see an instability across the board. The chances of fighting resuming in Yemen are quite high. There was a ceasefire earlier this year. It has ended. And now we see the various parties preparing for the next round. Libya is a very unsettled place as well because of the failure of the political process in the past year. Syria, there's always a potential for greater Turkish intervention, for a clash between Israel and Iran, for a revival of the insurgency against the Assad regime. These are frozen conflicts. They're not resolved issues, and, and no one has decisively won on any of those battlefields. In terms of regional rivalries, I think Turkey is quite keen on lowering the pressure at the moment with its Gulf rivals in Egypt. The competition was very tense at the moment. I mean, I think it almost rivaled the one between the Gulf states and Iran, for instance. But President Erdogan right now is driven by domestic priorities and an upcoming election in 2023. So in the past year, he has taken some spectacular steps to lower tensions and build an economic relationship with Egypt and especially the Gulf states. That has bore fruits. In a minute, I'm going to ask Maya to talk about China, but we're recording this just as China's President Xi Jinping is about to take a trip to Saudi Arabia to visit Mohammed bin Salman. You wrote the chapter in Strategic Survey looking at Saudi's changing foreign policy. Its posture towards China would be an interesting thing to ask about, but could you just give us a sense of, as one of the most important powers in the region, how Saudi Arabia's approach to the, the Middle East is changing? Certainly. I mean, first, the visit of uh, President Xi Jinping has been long awaited and will certainly be seen as a reflection of an important shift in Middle East politics and, and geoeconomics, their own pivot to Asia. I think the fundamental strategic dilemma that Saudi and other Gulf states are facing is that their security lies in the West while their prosperity lies in the East. And so they look at this global competition that's happening right now between the US and China, primarily you know, with Russia and, and, and the EU in the mix as well. And countries like Saudi want to make the most out of it. They want to hedge, they want to get as much American technology and capital as possible, along with Chinese technology and capital and trade and so on. It's a high wire act because there are some important decisions to make very soon in terms of, you know, deploying 5G, 6G, in terms of the kind of arms sales on the horizon, in terms of like, strategic relationships, uh, in terms of infrastructure and energy. Saudi's foreign policy thinking has shifted in, in recent years. It has come to view the relationship with the U.S. in a very cold transactional manner. It is about security. It is about economics, but it's not about strategic alignment anymore. Washington should no longer expect that Saudi will align its energy or foreign policy views on, on Americas. And Riyadh should not expect automatic protection from the U.S. And that cold reality is now well understood, I think, in D.C. and Riyadh. This allows Riyadh, essentially, to 
invest in, in geoeconomic relationships that are critical for the success of Vision 2030, which is the grandiose transformation plan that Crown Prince Hamad bin Salman put on track a few years ago and is at the core of his vision. And so everything is subordinated to the success of Vision 2030. And for Vision 2030 to work, Saudi Arabia needs to build strong relations with you know, South Korea, Japan, other Asian economies, but most importantly, China, which is expected to be the most reliable buyer of Middle Eastern energy for decades to come. So solidifying that relationship has been critical for Riyadh. And at times, this has created tensions with the U.S. because of the view of, you know, zero-sum approach to, to these relationships. Countries like Saudi, but Saudi is not alone in that, they don't like to be asked to choose. They don't like to be told that if it turns into a worse kind of competition, that they will have to decide whether they're going to stick with their security partner or their primary economic one. These are not easy decisions for middle powers. And, and Saudi is just a great example of that. Well, this is a good time for us to bring our China specialist, Maya Noens, into the conversation. So, Maya, could you say a little bit about what the Chinese military have been doing this year? Thanks, James. And I think you're absolutely right. Look, there are areas of military reform and modernization that are equally as important as having military technology that is modern and advanced. You have to, at the end of the day, be able to leverage these technologies. And for that, rests really on things like doctrine and people of the PLA, so personnel issues. And here, you know, we've seen progress in areas and a focus in areas like training, recruitment and retention of talent, ensuring that there's been reform of the education system in line with the type of PLA that Beijing would like to see be developed, reform in the types of training and exercises, and of course, changes to doctrine and not just changes to doctrine, but ensuring that there's actual operational concepts and tactics that are evolved in order to align with that new doctrine. This year, I'd say it's just been more of the same. We've seen slow progress in these areas of change. For example, we've seen the PLA move from once a year a recruitment cycle to a twice a year recruitment cycle, and that's an effort to get more talent out of universities and high schools as quickly as possible to fill the need uh, within the PLA for this type of high-skilled talent. But ultimately, at the Party Congress in October this year, I thought it was really interesting to look at the areas that Xi Jinping remarked on in his speech with regards to the work report and the areas of progress that the PLA needs to make. There was a sense that there needs to be some greater effort on the PLA's part to speed up certain areas of military modernization. And I think, you know, looking at the areas that I just outlined, there certainly is an effort that we're going to be seeing in the next year to respond to some of these things, to respond to, for example, the development of a doctrine that is fit for fighting an intelligentized war. Uh, that's a war that uh, uses, uh, to a greater extent, an integration of emerging and disruptive technologies. To date, that's a goal for the PLA, to be able to fight that type of war, but there's no doctrine that we know of that supports that. Similarly, with regards to jointness, there's been a lot of talk in the PLA this year about the PLA's joint operational capabilities. But when it came to the exercises that the PLA conducted following the Pelosi visit around Taiwan, you know, 
that was quite limited in scale. And we've seen that echoed similarly in other PLA exercises across theater commands or between service branches that these, when they are joined, are still relatively limited in, in scale and scope. So these are things that are going to slowly progress, but these aren't things that can be completed from one year to the next. They just take time. So it's something to watch for the next year moving forward. Thank you, Mayor. So you heard us earlier ask Nigel about the latest in the Russia-Ukraine conflict. I wonder, from your perspective as one of the IISS China watchers, what has China taken out of the Ukraine conflict this year? You're right to raise the question, James. I think China in particular, of course, those sitting in Beijing will definitely be taking lessons out of the Ukraine conflict this year. And there is, I think, a near certainty that the PLA will be watching how Russia is performing, but also, of course, how the West is performing in supporting Ukraine and how Ukraine is performing in pushing back against Russia's invasion and war of aggression. We know that that's extremely likely because of certain experts in China, but also, of course, because historically the PLA looks to foreign military experience for lessons learned uh, and that's certainly true for the decisions that have been made with regards to the path of military modernization that China is on at the moment. Those lessons were learned very much from watching the United States fight in the first Gulf War which ultimately led to a decision in the PLA to focus on things like informatization and intelligentization of, of the military. So that is the greater digitalization of the PLA and also of course the greater use of emerging and disruptive technologies in the PLA in the future. So the lessons that I think Beijing will be taking away um, aren't just military in nature. The military ones are useful, but they, of course, don't translate immediately to lessons learned for a Taiwan contingency. Ukraine is a very different type of conflict than a Taiwan contingency may be in the future. Nevertheless, there are, of course, broader, more wide-ranging lessons about the use of the private sector, for example, and things like cyber and space, the important role of information dominance, the importance of air superiority, the importance of the element of surprise, the usefulness of a nuclear threat very early on in a conflict. I think all of these things will be lessons learned for the PLA. There are, of course, also other lessons that are not necessarily negative lessons for the PLA. There are also positive of lessons that the PLA will be taking away, such as the fact that Taiwan remains an island and that resupply of Taiwan will be very, very difficult in the event of a contingency. So there, I think there's, you know, both positives and negative lessons for the PLA to be taking away from this. There's also political and economic lessons that Beijing will be taking away from this, namely the ability of the West to unify in response to Russia's war of aggression quite quickly. Second of all, the important role that the private sector in in the West has taken in regards to responding to the war in Ukraine. And both of those things, I think, will have been a shock and a surprise to those sitting in Beijing, having looked at a history of decades, perhaps less uh, European unity than we've seen in the last few months, and certainly for the majority of this year. So I think in that sense, that might be something of concern for Beijing if it thinks about how this might be applicable in a Taiwan contingency, the type of retaliation that there might be for China. Nevertheless, I think that there are a couple of things that Beijing is doing to prepare itself for that. First of all, there's been a large information operation from China across Europe to try and understand 
whether or not Europeans are thinking similarly about a Taiwan contingency as they have with their response to Russia. Second of all, I think the Chinese government is currently seeking to highlight the importance of the Chinese economy for Europeans and for Western investors, ensuring that those um, economic links remain strong as a way to perhaps dissuade Europeans from intervening in a Taiwan contingency in the future by saying that there is still an important use of this relationship for them. Third of all, I think that there's an effort within China at the moment to try and bolster the domestic economy and to sanction-proof it to a large extent. And here, the weaknesses of the Chinese economy are very much in the financial sector, where the Chinese economy still is reliant on Western systems and standards and technologies. But slowly but surely, I think there is an effort in China to come up with domestic indigenous alternatives to that, that it can globalize. So think, for example, also of the internationalization of the renminbi or uh, creating an alternative to the SWIFT system. Ultimately, I think, despite all of this, what will be interesting to watch and what I think those sitting in Beijing will be watching very closely is to see how long Western unity actually lasts. For a Taiwan contingency, if there's the prospect of reunifying Beijing, reunifying Taiwan with the mainland successfully, then the question has to be, well, if there's an economic consequence for that and there's economic pain for Beijing and for China as a result of that, how long does that pain last? If it's short term, then perhaps it'll be worth it to try if the result is successful unification. If there's long term pain, then perhaps that makes those sitting in Beijing think twice. Thank you for that, Maya. Now to conclude our podcast today, I'm going to ask each of my panelists to cast their eyes forward to 2023 and what they think will be the most important trends and developments in their particular patch next year. So I'll go back to Nigel. Nigel, looking particularly at Ukraine and Russia and Eurasia, your area of expertise, what are you looking out for in 2023? This war is likely to continue to ripple out various forms of uncertainty and instability beyond the region where it's being fought. But to understand its course, I would say, look not only at how events develop on the battlefield, but look at the changes on the respective home fronts of all of the participants, including, of course, the Western countries that are providing essential help and support for Ukraine that are also imposing increasingly severe sanctions on Russia. So as much as anything, this is a contest of resolve. Russia is counting on Western commitment to Ukraine weakening in the face of, in the first instance, the falling temperatures of the coming winter and the uh, domestic costs of energy supply, counting also more generally on a dissipation of political will in at least one or more key countries of the so far formidable coalition breaking ranks and calling for peace talks. Conversely, Russia is facing growing strains, both economically, but also if, as I expect, there'll be another partial mobilization, possibly more than one, that will force more and more ordinary Russians to take a view on this war and decide whether they really want to be told that they have to fight against Ukraine and be sent to the front, often very poorly equipped. So look not only at fighting capacity, but domestic cohesion. This is, in that respect, a long game. The West should be well provisioned. Its uh, total GDP is something in the order of 10 or 11 times 
greater than that of Russia's. So it has the latent potential to prevail. The question is whether it will retain the political commitment to do so. Emil, you said the last year was one of the more relaxed that you've had in recent history as a Middle East analyst. Do you expect 2023 to be similarly relaxing? No, I don't. There will be a moment of truth on the status of, of nuclear talks with, with Iran, which right now can be described as, as, a, as a zombie that no one wants to put to rest because the consequences of that would be too big. But with the election of Bibi Netanyahu as prime minister in Israel, with Iran's nuclear advances, with lots of questions about U.S. reliability and commitment, the prospect of a showdown are increasing on this front. As before, a regional war would have terrible consequences across the region. It may not happen in part because if you're the U.S. or other major powers with Ukraine on fire and rising tensions in Taiwan, perhaps you don't want to add another large war to the mix. This is the kind of low to medium probability event with very high impact. So certainly analysts should be watching this very carefully. There is another arena that we have to watch closely, which is the Eastern Mediterranean. 2023, we'll see two elections, two in Turkey, a presidential and, and national legislative elections, and one in Greece. There is a lot of competition in the Eastern Mediterranean over maritime boundaries, energy, geopolitics, all made worse by the war in Ukraine, the presence of Russia in the Eastern Med and so on. So this is a very unsettled place and it's not too difficult to see an accident escalating into something more serious, which then would expose the limits of Western unity and strategy. I mean, the, the Eastern Mediterranean is the southern fleck of the EU and of NATO. That would require massive investment in terms of diplomatic capital, uh, resources, and so on, at a time where uh, Western countries are trying to focus on Russia and China. So it, it would be more than a divergent or a distraction. It would be a serious setback to Western unity. So last but not least, Maya, it's been an eventful year for China this year with the 20th Party Congress and much else besides. But what have you got your eye on for China in 2023? Well, there's lots to watch out for for 2023. I mean, it's going to be the first year of Xi Jinping's third term. So if we're thinking about potentially a fourth term, then the next few years are going to be incredibly important for him to set a, a standard and to lay the groundwork for that fourth term. The things that I'm going to be looking out for specifically are going to be things like um, how does the CCP continue to balance the need for economic growth with you know, what we saw emphasized very much in the 20th Party Congress work report, which is a focus on national security and stability. Is there going to be acceptance of a slower economic growth and what's the consequence of that going to be within the national public sentiment? Second of all, related to that is going to be how dynamic zero COVID is going to be relaxed over time. And we've seen some efforts at the moment and anecdotes that those very strict dynamic zero COVID rules have started to be relaxed. But I think at the moment, there's still quite a lot of confusion about what that means and what exactly the rules are that are in place or not. And so this is all, I think, quite a confusing time at the moment to try and understand what this means practically. For the next year, what I'll be looking at is what the impact of this is going to be on the country writ large. So not just in terms of how the country's health system is going to be able to cope with severe increase in cases and potentially a severe increase in deaths. We know that China does not have sufficient ICU beds in hospitals uh, to be able to deal with what will be a large response. Second of all, um, what that leads to in terms of public sentiment. I note that for example, in some 
uh, reporting uh, or in some of the statements that came out of the dynamic zero COVID protests that we saw in the last few weeks in China, there was a sentiment that you know, at the end of the day, it is what it is that Omicron is is not as deadly as other strains of the virus have been in the past and that uh, there just needs to be an acceptance amongst the population that unfortunately those who are vulnerable may just uh, succumb to uh, the disease and, 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 and that there will be some fatality as a result of the relaxation of dynamic zero COVID policies. That's a, a line of argument that we heard very much in uh, the West and in Europe and certainly in the UK about a year ago as well. A need to just build herd immunity in order to return to normal economic activity. What I then think is going to be really interesting to watch is to see how the government's going to respond to that. I mean, are we going to see if public sentiment turns again, a much harsher response from the government with regards to cracking down on protests? Will we see more protests uh, at all in the future? Or um, what will the impact of these protests have been moving forward in the next year? I also be looking at how externally China seeks to improve its relations with the West, um, particularly Europe, as it comes out of uh, very strict dynamic COVID zero policies and seeks to re-engage diplomatically. Uh, we've seen President Xi already start that with uh, various meetings outside of China, as you noted, uh, his recent trip to the Gulf. I think we're going to see more of that, not just to the global South. We might potentially also see uh, more engagement with the West, but it'll be interesting to see um, how China approaches its relationship with the West, which have severely deteriorated over the last three years of the COVID-19 pandemic. And more importantly, also, how will Beijing balance that with its relations with the global South? I mean, we've seen an attempt now to not just roll out uh, infrastructure around the world, but also to roll out new concepts as a real alternative to a Western-led international order, as Chinese leaders tend to claim that um, the current rules-based international order is. Um, so we see that through the promotion of things like the Global Development Initiative, the Global Security Initiative, and the Global Data Protection Initiative. How are these going to be promoted? What do they actually mean? And what's the uptake going to be of these initiatives that are very much directed, not at the whole world, but the global south in particular? And the last thing, which is not necessarily for next year alone, it's for the next two years, is going to be watching the presidential elections in Taiwan. Taiwan has just voted on local elections this year, and the KMT uh, unsurprisingly came out strong. But that doesn't necessarily mean that the DPP is in danger for losing a presidential election in 2024. Uh, so what are we going to see in the next two years concerning cross-strait relations and concerning domestic Taiwanese politics? And how is China going to respond to that? Thank you very much to all three of my guests and thank you all for listening. We hope you enjoyed this episode on our new strategic survey. You can read some of strategic survey, including the editor's introduction and a few other choice morsels on the IISS website. For more in-depth analysis of all the things we cover at the IISS, visit the same website or follow us on Twitter and LinkedIn and you'll find more information in the show notes. As ever, please do follow, rate, and subscribe to Sound Strategic wherever you happen to listen to your favorite podcasts to keep up to date with all the latest episodes. Thank you, and see you all next time.